morning. <clears throat> good morning, good morning. Thanks for being with us. It's good to see so many of you. It feels like sickness is spreading everywhere, so it's good to see so many not sick people or people who are good at hiding it. We're going to be in Ruth for the last week of our sermon series leading up to Christmas. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. Uh, in the back, in this middle section, we have uh, some Bibles, so please take one. I uh, would love to just give you that. It could be a gift to you. It'll be the same version of what I'm reading up here this morning, the CSB. We're going to be in Ruth chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4. Starting in verse 1. Boaz went to the gate of the town and sat down there. Soon the family redeemer Boaz had spoken about came by. Boaz said, come over here and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Then Boaz took ten men of the town's elders and said, sit here. And they sat down. He said to the redeemer, Naomi, who's returned from the territory of Moab, is selling the portion of the field that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should inform you. Buy it back in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you want to redeem it, do it. But if you do not want to redeem it, tell me so that I will know, because there isn't anyone other than you to redeem it, and I am next after you. I want to redeem it, he answered. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from Naomi, you will acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the deceased man, to perpetuate the man's name on his property. The redeemer replied, I can't redeem it myself, or I will ruin my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption, because I can't redeem it. At an earlier period in Israel, a man removed his sandal and gave it to the other party in order to make any matter legally binding concerning the right of redemption or the exchange of property. This was the method of legally binding of a legally binding transaction in Israel. So the redeemer removed his sandal and said to Boaz, buy back the property yourself. Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I am buying from Naomi everything that belonged to Elimelech, Chilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malone's widow, as my wife, to perpetuate the deceased man's name on his property, so that his name will not disappear among his relatives or from the gate of his hometown. You are witnesses today. All the people who were at the city gate, including the elders, said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is entering your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel. May you be powerful in Ephrathah and your name well known in Bethlehem. May your house become like the house of Perez, the son of Tamar, born to Judah, because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. He slept with her, and the Lord granted conception to her, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap, and became his nanny. The neighbor women said, A son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the family records of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Let's pray. God, this is your word, and you tell us that it all points to Jesus, so would you please open our eyes to see that? 
Would you move in our hearts to receive the good news that comes from Ruth chapter 4 today? And we pray that the same Holy Spirit that inspired these words would meet the words in our hearts to give us what we need today. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been in the series looking at the short book of Ruth that in some ways stands in stark contrast to what surrounds it. We read in the very first verse that it happens during the time of the judges, time of total chaos, unfaithfulness, rebellion from God and his ways. And then we have in this story, not one, but two people of noble character, Boaz and Ruth, are faithful to Yahweh, to God, and to his ways. Now at the end of this book, we're coming to some conclusion. Ruth and Naomi have been left with nothing. Because Elimelech foolishly led their family away from the promised land during a time of famine, thinking, I can go make my own way. I'm going to go find food somewhere else. So he said, I'm going to go do this. Come, family, you're coming with me. After he died and both of his sons died, Naomi and the daughters-in-law are left wondering what they should do. So they return to Bethlehem, and Naomi says, daughters-in-law, go back to your, your homeland. You have no hope of staying with me. I'm a widow. I don't have sons for you to marry. We have nothing. But Ruth clings to Naomi because she has become convinced of who the true God is. So she wants to stay. She wants to go to Bethlehem. And in this story, God has been weaving that he's providing for Ruth and Naomi. Begins by providing some grain, some barley through Boaz. But then we learned in chapter three, the provision is much larger than that. Boaz is not just a generous landowner who's gonna provide barley when they need it. He's the family redeemer that can marry Ruth to redeem the entire family's legacy. So here we are in chapter four, seeing the conclusion of this story all about redemption, all about redemption. The first thing we see in chapter four is the cost of redemption. There's some legalese happening in Ruth chapter four where Boaz is waiting at the city gates and he starts to set the stage for what he's about to do. He sees the family redeemer and he says, hey, come over here and sit down. I know you're going out of the city to go work. Sit down for a minute. And then he gets 10 of the town elders, probably leaders of tribes or clans, and says, you all come sit down. I know I'm going to need some witnesses for what's about to happen. And then he lays the case before this redeemer. Hey, you know Naomi's come back. Well, you're the closest redeemer that has the right to buy the land so that the land stays in the family. Do you want the land? Now he's thinking, yeah. I pretty much get free land because I'm the family member, so I'll take the land and make money on it. And he's got a family to provide for and to care for. And then Boaz uh, wisely holds back a little bit of the information until he agrees to the land and then says, actually, there's someone connected to the land. There's someone still remaining in the family and it's Ruth. So if you want the land, you've got to take Ruth as well. Now this other closer redeemer counts the cost and realizes it's too much for him. He says, I'll, I'm going to ruin the inheritance I've got for my own family. Now, why was this the case? Was he, was he repulsed by Ruth? what's going on with his response here? That all of a sudden, Ruth's thrown into the equation and he says, I can't do it. What probably is happening is that it would have cost him a lot of money to care for Ruth and Ruth's uh, widowed mother-in-law, Naomi, and any children Ruth would have. But because the purpose of redeeming the land is to marry the widow so that the widow could have offspring, 
And then that offspring would grow up to then take over the land. He's thinking it's gonna cost me a lot of money to take on this land to raise an offspring just to in turn give it away to him in 18 or 20 years. He's looking at that whole equation thinking, no, I'm not doing this. He counts the cost and says, no, I, I, don't, I don't think this would be wise for me and my family. Boaz, why don't you take my right of redemption? Boaz, on the other hand, gladly bore the cost. Do you see where this is going? They go through a legal agreement to make it formal, and what we learn from these first few verses of Ruth chapter four is that Boaz is again living up to the standard of a worthy redeemer. He's faithful, he is selfless, he is generous, he is kind, and he is loving. Most importantly, he loves Ruth. And because he loves Ruth, he is willing to bear the cost of redemption. That's the biggest difference between the other redeemer and Boaz. This other redeemer, we don't even learn his name, but he stands in stark contrast to Boaz because he clearly doesn't love Ruth, which is fine. But Boaz, why would he take on the cost of redemption? The cost would be the same to him. Why would he do it? It's very clear. It's because he loves Ruth. And we learn from Boaz that our true redeemer sees no cost too high to pay for the ones he loves. Boaz as a picture and a pattern, a theological word here, a type of a greater redeemer to come sets the pattern for us that a true redeemer sees no cost too high to pay for the ones that he loves. I mean, that sums up the Christmas season just about as well as you can. But when Boaz agrees to the cost of redemption, we immediately see the blessing that follows. And that's our second point this morning, the blessing of redemption. This blessing that takes place seems to happen in all directions. The blessing happens backwards to the, to, uh, the dead Elimelech in verse 10. The blessing happens to Ruth from the elders' words in verse 11. The blessing happens to their future offspring and their house that's gonna be built in verse 12. The blessing even happens to God uh, through the women of the town's words in verse 14. Now, what's interesting is that this mention of Elimelech and his entire family, this is the first mention of them since chapter one. They're set the stage as characters in chapter one, and then they're assumed because we know we're dealing with widows, and they had a family. They had husbands that had passed away. But this is the first time this full family has been mentioned again since chapter one. And Boaz twice gives us the motivation for redemption. He says it to the near redeemer, and then they say it again and repeat it again. He wants Elimelech's name to not be cut off. So by redeeming the land, Boaz is not taking the, the land and the family and the offspring of him and Ruth to continue his own name. He's taking it to continue the family legacy of Elimelech. And notice the two things he says about Elimelech. I don't want his name to be cut off in two places, among his relatives and from the gate of his hometown. Now what is interesting is that Elimelech himself cut off his own name from both of those places. Elimelech chose to leave his hometown during a famine. And Elimelech, when he fled his hometown, he led his relatives away from it. He left his relatives and his hometown to escape the famine and go outside the promised land to Moab. Elimelech's unfaithful exile almost led to his entire family being ruined 
But now we have Boaz saying that he wants to redeem the land to, quote, perpetuate the man's name, to continue on his name, his legacy, his family name. But this word for perpetuate is also translated all over the Old Testament, meaning to raise up. He wants to take the deceased man's name and legacy and resurrect it again. Now, this is fitting for this context. Elimelech has died, and his family legacy is as good as dead, too. But Boaz's redemption raises his name up again to continue on. Do you see and just sense the gospel threads of this story? Boaz is raising up an unfaithful, exile-seeking dead man to continue on his family name when Elimelech's done nothing to deserve it or earn it on his own. And in light of that, the elders then turn and give a threefold blessing in verses 11 and 12. May the Lord make the woman who's entering your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel. Just as Rachel and Leah were the mothers who built the house of Israel, gave birth to the 12 sons that became the 12 tribes, they are blessing Ruth that she may follow suit and that through Ruth, the house of Israel would be built. Now, house is a very important word for a name that's coming up at the end of Ruth. Because God makes a promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 about his house, that there's going to be a house of David and a ruler is gonna come who will reign forever and will be like a son of God. Then they say, may you be powerful in Ephrathah and your name be well known in Bethlehem. May your house become like the house of Perez, the son of Tamar, who was born to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this woman. We talked last week about the connections between Ruth chapter three and Genesis chapter 38 of Judah and Tamar's trickery and unfaithfulness and lying and how they provided for themselves and it's a really broken, messed up story. And then in Ruth three, we're almost set up to believe, are they gonna do this again? But instead we get a faithful response where they trusted the Lord to provide and he does. And now the elders say, may your house become like that house. Boaz comes from the line of Perez, which we learn in the genealogy that comes at the end of chapter four. And so God is in some way redeeming the story of Tamar through the story of Ruth and Boaz. One commentator, when he's looking at these blessings from the elders, says that they came as witnesses and they are leaving the city gates prophesying. Because they have come and pronounced blessings that when we look at the scope of the story of scripture, we know where all of this is heading. Because Boaz agrees to the cost of redemption, now all of these people are experiencing the blessing of redemption. The blessing of redemption is that the dead are effectively raised. The widows are provided for. The family continues. A household is blessed again. And God is praised as the one who does it all. As we move on to the last section of chapter four, we see the source of redemption. If the first part of this chapter might seem like a meeting of the men, the last section seems to be a meeting of the women. The women of the town come, and it, there's kind of some awkward language here. Do they name the baby in light of the mother and the mother-in-law? I mean, what, what's happening here? The women come, and they first notice that this is a miraculous birth. In verse 14, blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. 
they acknowledge that this is a miraculous birth. This was not because of Ruth and Boaz that this baby was born, in part because we know Ruth was married to Malone for 10 years and they never had children. We're only left to assume why. Was she barren? What else could have kept them from having children? Why would they have waited so long? That was very uncommon in these days unless it was physically impossible for them to have children. Ruth seems like she cannot have children and now she marries Boaz and children come. The women of the town recognize that this birth is miraculous, but they also pick up on a surprising redeemer. All throughout Ruth, we're led to believe Boaz is the redeemer. Boaz is the family redeemer. I mean, Naomi comes right out and says it in chapter two. We have a family redeemer, and it's this Boaz who took care of you in the field yesterday. But in the women's blessing, they use some surprising language. The women said to Naomi, in verse 14, blessed be the Lord who's not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. May this family redeemer's name, hey, this, fa- this redeemer that the Lord has provided for you, may his name be well known in Israel because of this story of his faithfulness. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Remember Naomi in chapter one is bitter and is empty. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty And now the women are blessing her, saying, this redeemer that God has provided is going to sustain you and renew your life. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons. Bit of foreshadowing. If you turn the page, one page, to 1 Samuel chapter one, you'll read one of my favorite stories in scripture of Hannah and her scumbag husband. And when she, he he has two wives, And Hannah is sulking that she can't have children. He says, am I not better to you than 10 sons? And here we have the Lord has provided not just a son, but a faithful daughter-in-law. And the women say, your daughter-in-law is better to you than seven sons because she's faithful to Yahweh and to you. Now, so far, I've saved the last couple of words, but the women's blessing has been to God in light of the Redeemer he's provided for Ruth and therefore Naomi. But their last phrase should come as a bit of a shock to us. Your daughter-in-law has given birth to him. Wait a minute. I thought we were talking about Boaz. I thought this whole time Boaz is the family redeemer because he's the one that had the right to redeem the property and Ruth, he could remarry Ruth and keep the family name going and he's been the faithful one. And now all of a sudden, the redeemer that the women are talking about is the one that Ruth just gave birth to. So just like there's a miraculous, surprising birth, there seems to also be a surprising redeemer. God has surely given a redeemer to Naomi and this redeemer will renew and sustain her. But Ruth's the one that gave birth to him? Ruth didn't give birth to Boaz, but apparently Boaz is not the only redeemer in this story, and we have to wait all the way till almost the end of Ruth chapter four to find out that there's another redeemer, and it's the baby who was miraculously born. Obed's name means one who serves, and even in his infancy, Obed serves Naomi by redeeming her by redeeming her emptiness, by redeeming her bitterness, by reviving the family that she never thought she would have, by allowing her to be uh, the caretaker, the nanny, the CSB says, 
the foster mom of Obed, and allowing her to mother again, even in his infancy, he's redeeming and serving Naomi. But the scope continues to widen as we get to the end of the book of Ruth because it ends with a genealogy. So through Boaz and Ruth, God will bring about Obed, who fathers Jesse, who fathers David. So one commentator noticed that Boaz might have redeemed Naomi. Obed seems to have redeemed the entire house of Elimelech. And David will redeem the entire nation of Israel. Through the small, ordinary faithfulness of a foreign widow in Moab who happened to marry a boy from Bethlehem. And then in his death and her brother-in-law's death and her father-in-law's death, they make their way back to this Bethlehem house of bread because there was no bread before and now there is bread. And they meet the faithful Boaz who's also convinced that Yahweh is the one true God. And through God working out these miraculous circumstances, they get married and they have a child, Obed. And now the family, which was as good as dead in Moab when all these men had died, is revived. One thing to notice as we read scripture, especially in the Old Testament, is the patterns in which God works. Notice the patterns, because those patterns are continued and repeated, and most often they're picked up by Jesus and his story in the New Testament to say this is the one we've been looking forward to the entire time. So Obed, the miraculously born baby who redeems a family and is pointing to David, looks forward to another baby miraculously born, to a mother who was also unable to get pregnant because she was a virgin, who is also God's servant. And this baby will not just redeem a grandmother, not just redeem a family, not just redeem the nation of Israel, but this baby who will come, the greater servant than Obed, the greater redeemer than Boaz, the greater king than David, will redeem the world. The beauty of the Christmas story is that our Savior did not come in world-renowned glory. He did not come with all eyes watching. He did not come in widespread fame. He came almost unnoticed. Just like it's surprising at the end of Ruth to learn that Obed is the Redeemer, it's also surprising to learn that about Jesus. In fact, you hear people say it in the Gospels. He's from Nazareth. We know his family. We know his parents. This is not the Christ. This is not the Messiah. This is not the anointed one to bring salvation to our people. He's too common. We know too much about him. This can't be him. The beauty of Christmas is that the glorious one of heaven is the one in the manger. That the one in Genesis 1 is also the one in Luke chapter 2, the baby. The one speaking, let there be light, is the same one who was born as an infant. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, that our entire faith system is upside down from what you'd expect it to be. Christ in his riches, in his power, in his glory, humbled himself, Philippians 2 says, to come as a child, as a servant. And it gives us hope today that we could experience the divine glory of God in the mundane ordinariness of our lives. We really can have and we really can experience God's presence in our lives because Jesus 
left heaven to bring it. He brought the glory of heaven to a stable of animals and a manger. He brought the glory of heaven to a small town of Bethlehem. You say, what's Bethlehem? That's, so, that's such a tiny town. Why does it matter? Well, it matters because it was the town of David. Why does it matter to the town of David? Let me tell you about his grandparents. The story of faithfulness. The story of God miraculously lining things up to provide. The story of a redeemer. And then all of a sudden, the story of Jesus takes on texture and shape like we could have never imagined because our Savior was born in the tiny town of Bethlehem to a not-yet-wed mother, unsure of what all it meant that she was carrying the Son of God in her womb. And now because of this, because of this story, because of the story of Ruth that points us to the story of Jesus, because of what Jesus has done, we can have God's presence today. Jesus has come, as I just read Tim Keller say this morning, Jesus came to be close to you. And I saw in response to that quote a couple of years ago, some pompous theologian decided to say, actually, the second person of the Trinity came in human flesh in order to glorify the eternal God because we were undeserving of his presence and he came to show mercy on And I'm thinking, if you don't have the imagination to read the words, came to be close to us, and if that's not meaningful, and you have to go pivot to some theological, wordy thing about what all Christmas is, Christmas is very simple, y'all. Jesus came to be close. He came to draw near. He came to invite us to draw near to him. That's why he came in the most ordinary, helpless way he could to redeem the entire human experience, starting from infancy, from a newborn. We could go down the theological route and use those words, and we just preach the Apostles' Creed. I tried. But I like to sum it up to say, Jesus came to be close. He came to show you, no matter how ordinary your life is, the glory of God is there, because Jesus is there. No matter how broken your life seems, If you fled a famine and found yourself in Moab, there's hope because God has not lost sight of you. If you find yourself in a tiny town overlooked wondering what difference does it make, let me tell you about where Jesus is from and his family story because God is there too. That's the story of Ruth and I think the story of Ruth sets us up wonderfully to get ready for the story of the coming of Jesus on Christmas. So I've been excited to walk through this book together these last four weeks, and I hope it creates in us a longing, like what we sang, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, or a song I've been listening to this week, Come Thou Long-Expected Jesus. So I hope that as we end the book of Ruth, and we're looking forward to about eight days away, Christmas, we're not just looking forward to the gifts, but we're looking forward to the giver of every good and perfect gift, and the way he came, and how miraculous that is for us. Let's pray.